Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Scott Heiferman. Super excited to have you here. I'll give a quick intro on you, but uh, we'll dive in and take it from there. Sound good? Sounds good. Thank you for joining. Good to be here. Thanks. Cool. So Scott is a legend. He is most known for being the founder of meetup.com, but started a bunch of other companies, Photolog among them, which was kind of Instagram before Instagram. But he's also done a lot of other really interesting things throughout his career and stands out to me as not just an entrepreneur, but really a thinker and really a visionary, not just with technology, but in how technology intersects with culture, with movements, and with humans and people and communities. So we're going to use this time to talk about the future and possible futures. And so we'll touch on a bit of Scott's past and how it's shaped how he thinks. But really, the point of this conversation is to explore possibilities and to see where we can go from here. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you're doing this, Joe. Yeah. So I think we should start with what's exciting you? What is exciting you these days? I mean, you know, we all balance things that are like exciting us and things that are scaring us. And so I should just answer your question directly. But I mean, I, I think it's okay for anyone to be like overwhelmed with senses of lack of, lack of excitement. You know, mm-hmm. it'd be like phony to say like, oh my God, my entire consciousness is about excitement of the f- future. But that being said, what's exciting, um, there's a whole lot. I mean, to me, we all have our different lenses on things. For me, I, I'm really interested in these questions of how people feel powerful. And specifically, people tend to feel more powerful when they're together. The sort of lone cowboy notion of like, I am superhero powerful person versus the sense of belonging that comes when you're powerful with others. So I'm, I'm excited about that points itself to the emerging new labor movement wave is exciting to me. And just how that touches on tangentially various forms, various ways that people feel powerful with other people. So I love that framing of feeling powerful with other people because it in some ways flies in the face of the popular conception of power, which is much more of this sort of individualistic notion. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that frame? And like, how, how did you come to be interested in it? Well, I mean, I really don't know. You know, I can't point to like childhood. I can't point to anything. I just lived my life, had my adventure, my career, my path, and like stumbled into a 16-year stint as CEO of Meetup, which was just a 16 years of graduate studies and seeing what happens when people meet up and really being inspired by it. So, I mean, I could go deeper into, you know, oh, what drew me to that work, perhaps. But really, it's like when you like are just pounding away year after year in the in the startup job of building something that, you know, ultimately got 100 million people to sign up to form local groups about things. And you see the ways they did it. It's just very 
to me, it's like, it's an addiction of like seeing that and seeing where it went well. And I mean, you know, specifically like how it is that people were able to, it's kind of a, a paradox, you know, you be more yourself when you're with others. Why do you think that is? I'm not going to like pretend to be some very comfortable armchair. You have a nice uh, furniture here, Joe, but I'm not going to pretend to be some psychologist. But basically, I mean, to me, the power question is really important. I mean, there's like the just kind of spiritual, psychological dimensions to it. But when you see that, like I'm looking out on an expanse right here of New York City, out your window in Brooklyn, and, and, you, and you realize that so much of what's been built by people is just this weird conglomeration of people forming companies and people forming partnerships and people forming unions. And it all gets built because people are working together. And that's magic. So for those who don't know what Meetup is, mm -hmm. give us a high level overview. Yeah. So, you know, Meetup's going pretty strong. Started in 02. It was a 9-11 baby. It was mm -hmm. like almost nine months to the day after 9-11. I had an experience, you know, living in New York City, seeing those towers come down from the rooftop of my apartment building and seeing how neighbors came together to look after each other and talk and connect where they hadn't before. And so that led me and co-founders down a path to building something that really just it was a stupid, simple idea, which is how do people use the internet to get off the internet and just make a local group about something. They want to form a, a book club about something, a you know, hiking group in their town, a breast cancer group. They just wanted to meet up with other people who have, share the same interest. And it worked and it took off and it was a wonderful, crazy ride of also building a business that was sustainable and with no ads. And, you know, it was also kind of a model as a company for building something you believe in and trying to make it sustainable. And I stole a line from Craig Newmark from Craigslist. People would ask, what's your exit strategy? And I'd say the exit strategy is death. But I had venture investors and then stumbled into a situation where there was a offer you can't refuse. I'm answering more than what you asked here. But there's also situations in life where you, you don't realize when you're burnt out or like you don't realize what you need in general sometimes. And so what I didn't realize was like, oh, um, yeah, 17 years into running this company and I loved it and wanted to do it forever. But then, oh, that stopped. And actually, that was a good thing because mm. I got to like take a, a break from manager mode and back into open ended mode. You said this in a couple ways, but like you stumbled into it. So how much of an interesting community did you have before Meetup? Oh, not really. I mean, I can't really point too much at all, which is really interesting. I mean, interesting for a question of how people live their lives, like kind of like you don't know who you're going to meet that's going to be important to you. You also don't know what ideas or what interests you have that really what might turn you on. And, you know, Jeff Bezos has this good line. He says, if you're lucky, you have a job. If you're really lucky, you have a career, hmm. but you've hit the jackpot if you have a calling. Hmm. So yeah, I was lucky. It was a real interest of mine, how people come together. How did you get into the internet? Well, so I'm, I'm an old man. I'm 50. Although actually, interesting side note on that. I watched a YouTube video of Mike D from the Beastie Boys recently gave an interview. He's around my age and he was like, all right, when you're 50, you got to just accept that you're like irrelevant and stop and don't even try to be relevant and just like fade in the background. Like, and he does not even interested in new hip hop. Like don't even try to be interested in modern hip hop. And he's like a grandfather of hip hop. And then and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then you look at like Elon Musk, love him or hate him, but it's like he's on full steam yeah. creation mode. Anyway, I got into the internet because I was born at the right time. 
yeah, I was sitting in the computer lab at the University of Iowa, sitting next to my buddy, Ryan Nelson, and he taps me and he says, look at this thing. It was the Mosaic web browser by Mark Andreessen that had just been released that morning. And I'd be live. I was like, oh my God, the stars, you know, the stars opened up. But it was definitely like, oh, wait, wow, you can have a GUI, you can have a graphical user interface for this internet protocol, IB. And yeah, it's just off to the races from there and just like, screwing around. And then were you interested in it? Like, did you get a job in internet stuff afterwards? So I made a pilgrimage. I was in Iowa. At Iowa, I was a year away from graduating. And my friends were like lining up for job fairs to get jobs at Price Waterhouse or whatever. And I was like an old Apple fanboy. And I saw that there was a uh, Mac World was a conference mm-hmm. happening. And I'd never been to California. And I booked a ticket by calling the airline and having this little pilgrimage to Macworld, which was like the fantasy of early Silicon Valley and had a job offer in um, Silicon Valley and a job offer in the East Coast. And I thought, well, I'll go East for a year. Got a job at Sony working on their early General Magic, which is the early smartphone way years before. Stayed there a year, quit, started the first online ad agency. Just was dumb young person, you know, just having a... just. Hmm trying stuff. And yeah, got lucky, really hustled and had early success. So you never went out west? Nope. Nope. But yeah. And Did so you I started, apply to work at Apple? No, no, no. Yeah. No. You were just looking at other companies out. In yeah. The I just wanted to do anything. I was a kid from the Midwest who like, I don't know about you, but like, you don't think that like you could actually break out of your, mm-hmm. the world you're from or the world you're in. And like when you have that little window open to something else, it's like, it's when you're not sure that that is actually possible. It's pretty, it's a good feeling. What was that window for you? That window was, I would send letters to any executive anywhere (laughs) saying like, I'll work for free. Just let me help. And so this one VP at Sony, his name was Brian Srobe, who was working on this General Magic project. Those watching or listening, like watch the documentary General Magic. It's about incredible group of people that failed at creating the first real smartphone effort, um, which is a, mostly out of Apple. And uh, this is, you know, we're talking early, early days. And so I wanted to have anything to do with this project. In fact, Tony Fadell, the founder of Nest, I mean, he <laughs> wormed his way into this world too. And I wormed my way into it at Sony and it was basically the glorified intern who, but then I told them like, hey, there's this thing called the web. We should have a website. And I mean, there was no corporate commercial anything at the time. And so I I made Sony's first online presences. That's cool. When was that, by the way? This is 1994. Wow. Yeah. And the web was like a year or two old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I thought we were going to talk about the future. We are, we are. But (laughs) I guess one question there, and then we'll talk about the future, which is, What was that drive for you when you you said, I can empathize and relate to that moment of like, you see a window and you're doing everything in your power to sort of use and get through that window. But what was driving that for you? Like, was it like pure ambition or was there something there beyond that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how to explain ambition. I mean, how do you answer that? (laughs) Like, I think there's a lot of a lot of it's visceral and like non-lingual, right? I think that there's this drive quality. So, but I guess for you, yeah, like, is it something that just a feeling? Does it feel the same now? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Which is like, you know, you think if like you achieve good part of what you dreamed of, you would like then your spirit would settle down a little bit. But um, I lost a parent as a kid. And I think that that's, that's a, a certain wake up call of like knowing that life is fragile and that, 
just make the most of it. But I, I think I, there's definitely a drive to like make stuff that's not been made to like tap into like possibilities. Look around, look at the world and you realize everything is person made and the world is just, it's so friggin' random and a lot of possibilities don't happen and a lot of good possibilities don't happen. And the soul of Meetup was always, why the hell can't the people who want to meet the other marathon runners in their town meet the marathon runners? Why the hell can't the people who have breast cancer in their town find each other? The spirit of it was also like eBay had was before us. And eBay was, oh, wow, someone who has some shit in their attic that other people would treasure. One person's trash is another person's treasure. So it's just a connection failure. And all marketplaces are like connection failures. And I mean, we come to places like New York City so that you can collide and bump into people. And like, it's all about optimizing for connection. And so to me, I mean, the internet is not a network of computers, it's a network of people. And so just kind of unleashing possibilities. So to this day, the world's still broken in the sense of like, why can't you find the other people who you would want to connect with? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting framing because in the business world, there's this idea of like market inefficiencies and how like opportunities come around when you see a market inefficiency and you plug it. But what I'm hearing from you is almost like a network inefficiency or a connection inefficiency. And it still feels like we're like one one thousandth of the way there in terms of network efficiency or connection efficiency. Oh, it's almost unbound. Well, it, it is unbound, but I like the way you said it first, which is actually name it. You can't really name it, but you're right. It's like to realize that like we're 1%. Pieces of this are solved. I mean, you know, Uber made it to a person who wants to make money and offer a ride can connect with someone who wants to get a ride and pay for a ride. Uh, Airbnb, you know, did its version of it. But, you know, whether it's for transactions or whatever, we're wildly primitive in people connecting. And I encourage people to think about that in the most expansive way. I mean, here you have oppressive stuff going on in China and like job one of the Communist Party is to like not let people form groups because mm. groups are powerful. And a whole lot of things would be better if people's collective power were made easy. I like the framing of opportunity being like addressing network inefficiencies and there are different versions of those things. So for example, like you said, in a marketplace, it's like an economic network inefficiency. In the context of meetup, it's like a community inefficiency. Mm -hmm. But then there's like intellectual network inefficiencies, like Twitter and blogging and ideas. That's a really cool... Yeah, I mean, in all different spheres, like John Borthwick at Betaworks is really interested in network thinking. How do ideas stack and connect and tools like Rome and derivatives of that, that kind of stuff. It's a network. I was on your Twitter and you have pinned at the top an article by Kevin Kelly mm-hmm. um, from like 2011 talking about emergence and a bit of this principle, a bit of the possibilities of networks. Can you talk a little bit about that and what about his thinking resonates with you? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's lame to have the same tweet pin for 11 years, but it's which you'd think I'd be able to quote it right now. But, uh... but I thought what was cool about it was that the article you'd quoted was predictive in its nature. Yeah. Or it wasn't specifically predictive, but it was about the future. So it it, yes. it made sense as something that would be stuck to the top of your Yeah. And the theme of it is like, and this is, you know, hitting your original question of what you're excited about. I mean, to be excited that we can't imagine what happens when people connect in different ways. And that's January 6th. And that's Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, actually, who was one of the investors in Meetup. He, you know, he told me early on, I mean, he really invented the marketplace model online. And he said, yeah, you know, 
the best things happen when people connect and the worst things happen when people connect. But yeah, to your point about Kevin Kelly, it's our whole lives are basically filled with this serendipitous, weird output of connection, you know, just like the formation of villages and cities and towns and how things work and all of it. And so the fact that we are accelerating in the grand scheme of things, if you just sort of zoom out a bit, like change is accelerating, connectivity is accelerating, all things around it from AI and otherwise, it's both scary and exciting that a lot's going to change. And it's hard to picture that and imagine it. And also you have to realize that for, for most people, like change is the thing they're most terrified of. Yeah. So for those who don't know who Kevin Kelly is, he is kind of this techno hippie, I would describe him. He was one of the founders of Wired magazine, and he talks a lot about what technology wants and like this sort of spirit of technology and very influential thinker. I think in that article, he referenced this idea of the noosphere, N-O-O sphere. And that was an idea that was created like over a hundred years ago by like a French philosopher. And he described a hypothetical future where the world would become a collective consciousness through like a telecommunications network and that the individuals on earth would behave like neurons in a brain. And that was like predicting the internet effectively. And I think in some ways, so that reality has happened. And I think that the most powerful things we know of are networks in some ways, right? And so if you think about within an individual, the brain is a network of trillions of neurons. And now with technology and, and software and computing, we've basically created like a superstructure of brains. But in nature, that's true too. Like if you look at a forest, that's a network, it's an ecosystem. If you look at cities, if you look at nations, whatever, even like in outer space, you have networks of planets. And so there's this fractal nature to the universe with connections at the core. I would like to jump on, yeah, just like leap yeah. into yeah. your thinking. Yeah, actually that you making the connection from like this people network stuff to nature networks was one of the favorite topics of uh, my, a guy named Tony Shea, who passed away uh, about two years ago this week. He was the head of Zappos. He would talk a lot about complex adaptive systems that it's not just complex, it's that they're adaptive and that beyond just like what we know about evolution, the ways in which that forest, uh, you know, evolves and adapts and how that applies to everything is fascinating to me. But someone could listen to this and be like, oh, these guys are just blathering about some theoretical academic stuff. But I really feel like it's important for forecasting, important for thinking about like what's ahead in the near, medium, and far term. I mean, social media's impact, where does it go? What's going to happen from a legislative perspective, but also just thinking about dreaming up futures that we want, approaching it from a complex adaptive system perspective. And by that, I mean like, okay, so what are the future of markets? What's the future of how people are, are going to connect? What's the future of how social movements, economic movements? I mean, the things that are smashing together right now are an incredible, like you have like climate change smashing together with like the January 6th kind of stuff, smashing together with like the weird Elon kind of stuff, smashing together with where AI is going and the creativity and the, you know, impact on work. You know, will there be truck drivers smashing together with this, again, and I'm, this is my 
favorite thing to think about is like, how are people going to be powerful together? And I could just throw off that phrase and it just people could just say, oh yeah, there's Scott, you know, meetup guy blathering about that. But I, I really feel like a defining part of decades ahead is going to be the newfound ways that people are really exercising power. And so anyway, all these different things smashing together, I can think of some hopeful scenarios and I can think of some dangerous scenarios. So with complex adaptive systems, there's this quality to them that is unpredictable, right? There's this emergence factor, this thing that generates surprising possibilities. So if you want to tip the odds towards a future that you want, while also recognizing that we're dealing with these unpredictable environments, how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, that's a great question because I... I love answering it because the answer, I think, is just a fucking try to answer it. And by that, I mean, like, make up shit about what the future could be is something that we don't actually, very few people, including myself, like, like we don't do. Like, we love talking about history. We love talking about the present. We love talking about our little present of like, oh, did, did you hear what Elon said today? Or did you hear what Trump said yesterday? Or, and we can think about a little bit ahead, like, oh my God, we should pass this legislation, you know, next week or something. But I want to sit around with people more and not just gossip about like, oh, what did Kanye do now? But like, what could 2040 be for you? Like, what does that smell like? What does that look like? What's possible? And yeah, we make it up. We don't know. But this goes to this question of when we think about the future, because it's hard, we just then tend to reflexively just look to Hollywood or something. And name me a Hollywood picture of the future that isn't like some dystopian shithole. And yeah, maybe that's, maybe that is where we're headed. You know, maybe the Blade Runner future, the this future. But like, if you really press, like, you know, most people on like, okay, Flash, what's the future? They'll come up with some tropes that are largely like just driven by dystopian, dark sci-fi futures as opposed to, okay, you might be wrong, but what's a good future? So when you think about 2040, what's a good future? Uh, well, screw you for putting me on the spot, like, and, you know, calling out a hypocrisy. But <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, I admit like, You have to really take time on it. But anyway, the future that I am hopeful for here, I think, you know, maybe it's a long shot, but what I'm really hoping for is a situation where that breaks through the current reality, which is that uh, everyone's organized, but the people. Everyone's organized, but the people. And what that means, the ultra wealthy are ultimately kind of organized. They've got their, their means to influence everything. And that sounds like, oh, Scott conspiracy theory mode. I don't mean it like that. I just mean like if you're Andy Jassy at Amazon and you have a million warehouse workers, you can pretty much tell them what to do. And if people want to quit, they quit. And and so the 2040 idea is in various groups, big and small, whether that's a million Amazon workers, 10 million Amazon customers, 15 people in an office, or the people who want their public school to be better, that they actually have easy, lightweight means of being powerful together, which doesn't mean like, oh, it's mob rule. It means like there's a healthy, effectively market-based, free market-based notion of the people are, are organized in these different forms and that there's, and power is flexed and systems work better. Because the, the question of like, even just from a political or legislative perspective, like we're just in this weird zone of this representative republic 
democracy that like it's hard to have a sense of what the public really wants and it's constrained and there's you know there's all these different power influences so ultimately the vision and i wish i would be more tangible specific how does it look how does it smell mode but like the idea is that i think people will feel a greater sense of belonging and power because they're connected with people around them and the world is just a lot more balanced so that people have opportunity and frankly what i'm describing is more of a market based world, but it's also a more, I don't want to use the word socialist, but it's a social people-powered dimension. Right. It's everything. more bottoms up, yeah. but there are market dynamics at the core. So I guess, but let's probe a little bit. 2040, you have better tools for organizing. People are engaged with them. Let's just talk about one possible example of what that could look like and why the world would be better in that context. Yes. Let me hit the Amazon example. So, and I can give context later if you want, but basically what it looks like is the existence of billionaires is an organizing failure. The only reason why someone should have a billion dollars, and by the way, I apl- I'm an entrepreneur. I applaud entrepreneurs. If you become super rich, that's great. But the crazy super rich, the concept of a billionaire basically means that the workers or the customers around them, so here, here's the vision. And maybe I shouldn't just, I shouldn't talk about like Amazon specifically because that is what it is. But the idea is, is that the customers and employees of an entity that is really successful should have price pressure. The customers should basically say, we stand up for the workers being in a good situation and we also stand up for our prices not being too high. And the workers should say, we have banded together. We are like a company that you have to negotiate with or else you don't get our services as the workers. And at the end of the day, what it means is that instead of someone having a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars, they might have to scrape by with a hundred million dollars. <laughs> and it also it means that the shareholders should expect less profit. And it's like a, a healthier equilibrium. So this is not like, you know, this isn't like radical socialist communism or something. It's saying like the unrelenting power is constrained by, and then here, this is a really important point, then I'll shut up on this, Joe, is that you can't also deny what it feels like as a person to, in this case, be an employee, be one of these million workers at Amazon, and you want to feel like you have some influence in things and in your life, as opposed to just being a, I'm not saying they're victims, you know, they're just, hey, they're free market employees, but like, I can't express enough like the loss of dignity and impact on and broad psychological impact of lack of dignity if that comes with you feeling like you're lost or more importantly, if you feel like you can't put food on the table. Like the people delivering diapers for your kids can't afford diapers for their kids. And that's broken. You're going to keep pulling the thread. So you imagine a future where workers have more leverage and thus they're able to have higher wages relative to the CEO of the company or, or the owners of the company. And what you're describing is an economic power and as well as a psychological power that comes with more agency and that changes your relationship to life in a lot of ways. Is that, when you think of a better world, are those the two qualities? Is it more economic equality and more psychological freedom? Is that, is that? Yeah, those are, those are that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But psychological freedom. There's also the fact that like friendships are formed when you, you know, the feeling of, let's say you're a Starbucks and, and you know, I've had these conversations. You're a Starbucks barista and you can't make ends meet. 
and you band together with your 17 other Starbucks workers in your Starbucks store, and you say, we are going to hold hands. And I say those words really specifically. I'm not, I don't mean like, oh, we're just liking the same thing or we're in some, like you're literally holding hands. Like you're grasping someone's hand and say, we did it. We are part of this wave of getting us paid more so that Starbucks will go from this billions of dollars of profit to a few less billion dollars of profit and the money goes to us. I can't emphasize enough what it means to like have those coworkers feel like family and perhaps even go to their Thanksgiving dinner because your family isn't around. And the weaving of connections, of real relationships and community combined with doing so with that economic power as a form of, um, and by the way, I'm not, it's not just economic power. It could be the ways in which a parents in a public school might, might not be connected, but then be connected and command a better school and help build a better school. Oh, and by the way, the relationships that physical time spent together where they, uh, you know, um, can go into each other's refrigerator without asking. Um, this is something, Joan, I mentioned before we, we're talking here. It's a richer relationship life that is coupled with a power, economic and otherwise. Do you think that in a world where workers at an Amazon have more power, what Amazon does is different? In other words, is it simply you take Amazon as it currently exists, but employees have higher wages and more leverage? Or does what Amazon does, what their product is, does that change? So, yeah, I, I think I'm obsessed with that question also because so I'm involved in this this labor movement, which is weird because I'm it's usually pitted as like there's owners and capitalists against the the other, the opposite. And so I'm coming at this from a perspective of founder energy. Hmm. So what's fascinating is the workers at Amazon and Starbucks and Apple and Trader Joe's they're claiming that we represent the founders. They're saying, we actually believe in these companies. We believe in the mission. We believe in the founding spirit of these companies, you know, and we want these companies to succeed and thrive. And the way to do so is to treat us better. And I, I got to tell you, it's like it, it literally has made me cry when you see like a Starbucks worker quote Howard Schultz early days saying what Starbucks means to them, that they know the name of their uh, customer, for example, but you can't know the name of the customer if you're just trying to squeeze too few employees with so many customers, trying to like squeeze that extra billion dollars of profit. So there's just lots of examples of the people who are big like corporate champions or like certain kinds of like pro-capitalist people will be like, oh, the workers are just anti-company, when in fact they're more pro-company and pro the mission and the founder energy than the current over-corporatized private equity bullshit owners and managers of these good-spirited companies. Yeah, I didn't answer your question directly, but that's, a, I think, really interesting piece. Cool. So I think it's worth talking about specific examples to help illustrate like the general principle. And in this case, the general principle is bottoms up organization, thinking about labor and power. But I think the specific example of Amazon, it's not just about Amazon, it's reflective of the larger point, but it's helpful for us to think in that example. So on the Amazon example, tell us a little bit about your journey here, because you've been doing something really interesting uh, on this front. 
Yeah, yeah. And I and actually I haven't talked about it publicly at all and gonna keep that limited. But yeah, yeah. So I, I've been trying to help out with the Amazon Labor Union, which is the group that formed out of the Staten Island a Staten Island warehouse that voted for a union back in about April twenty twenty two here. And since around that time I've been, you know, as part of my trying to help with that group. I've been working in an Amazon warehouse since May 2022. What's that been like? Oh, yeah. It's been phenomenally interesting on a lot of levels. And yeah, I got to gather those thoughts one of these days properly. Oh, yeah. It's like it's a it's a really interesting feeling to know you're just like getting New Yorkers their shit. It's like for those of us that have like, you know, have had jobs where you're dealing in alternate universes or whatever universes, uh, like universe or whatever, <laughs> like to just know that like your job is to get people the stuff that they need very directly and, you know, hands-on is like, uh, and, and just know that the job is done when this stuff has gotten from this truck to that truck. There's no like nebulousness about like, is the job done or not? It's either done or it's not. But yeah, and overall just, uh, I think we all, we all would benefit from interacting with people outside our bubbles. What's the vibe like in the warehouse? There's a real sense of high five your coworkers when you get it all done. And that says a lot. Yeah. And there's a vibe of like in this particular warehouse, which is a, a certain kind of Amazon warehouse, it is, you know, the music is up and it's kind of high energy, good vibe. Yeah. Are people having fun? Well, I mean, it's hard, but yeah, it's like just a sense of purposefulness. And in this case, it's not some peeing in bottles sweatshop. I'm doing my one little shift a week, you know, so I don't have the full experience of what it's like to just like be, be cranking on the level of hours that a lot of people need to do because here's a trillion dollar company with many billions in profit, executives making millions and tens of millions and shareholders having billions. And yet for 16 bucks an hour, you're making the company work and you can't make ends meet. And so there's that hanging over it all. And yeah, the stories I hear from my colleagues about like how they they show up for a shift after having worked another shift somewhere else. And like there's just people who are putting in a lot of uh, hours to to make it work in life. If you could telegraph to 2040 in that warehouse, what's happening that's different? Well, I mean, there's, we can stray from just the like people power stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, again, on that front, I think a lot of people who might hear this, you know, will just be like skipping through because there's like, oh, here's a guy yammering about unions and unions suck. And I think unions suck too. What I'm interested in is what's possible for 21st century unions rather than just think of unions as what they became in the 20th century. But I mean, just let's not forget 100 years ago, we have what we have, like this country works and things work and there was a middle class and like the economy works because this notion of a union forming happened and it worked. So to answer your question about 2040, I hope, I don't think that, um, you know, unions became kind of broken, kind of corrupt, kind of um, they, uh, you know, in some, in, in some cases, they also, I think some people have this idea like I have a, a you know, my sister is a dentist and she'll say, oh yeah, the, you know, union people will come to their dentist appointment on the clock because they're protected and the union protects them and they, and, and, and it just makes for an unproductive situation and unions don't work. I'm a startup guy. So I'm saying 
what is a startup union? What is a 21st century union? What's possible? What's broken from the past? What do we learn from what didn't work? And how do you make something that works? So to, again, to try to answer the question of what does that look like? I think that the, the needs of 21st century companies like an Amazon are like, they're not going to give up on their values of like hard work, customer first. This is like the thing, Joe, that, that I'm fascinated by is that like, you know, Amazon won because they put the customer first. And we love the Amazon, you know, we, the people, <laughs> love the Amazon experience. And what's possible when the network gets denser and the volume gets higher? I mean, yeah, that has horrible implications for a distributed economy, <laughs> like one company becoming so big. But I digress. My, my main point here is that I think there's really a lot possible for workers to get paid to, to just participate in the success, the financial success of this company that they're building and that that looks like people getting what they deserve and making this, this uh, lucrative company. Imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder. You'd be like, what kind of podcast is this? We know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that. At Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend, and we'll see you out there. So it sounds like what you envision or what I'm projecting is a future where you can harness the power of the internet for like collective action. So imagine an internet-powered union or imagine something that takes the behavior that we do on social media and frames it in the context of organizing as a group of workers or any other sort of group of builders that are doing a thing. Is that what you're imagining? Yeah, but the answer, yes. But the answer is not some magical, magical union app. It's the question product, yeah. is, is like, how do people actually self-govern a, an organization? How do they self-govern a small organization, a big organization? How do people self-govern a, uh, a government? <laughs> you know, I think that just in, you know, how do people self-govern their town? How do they self-govern their neighborhood? How, uh, and, and um, you know, and this, this sounds a little cockeyed in the sense of like, well, no, people are just busy with their lives and watching TikTok and, and, and just trying to, and, and just getting by and like taking their kids to, you know, shuttling their kids around to, to soccer. Like they're not going to, you know, all of a sudden take on the job of governing their their employer's union or their their neighborhood. So so it is this like, I think this is an ultimate, like here, you know, as a product person, as a, des a designer, product person, but, you know, the, the questions of um, 
the questions of enabling people with a low engagement level to be involved in these things, but also to realize that people, and this is a big thing I learned at Meetup, huge thing I learned at Meetup, is that people actually have more to give. The hundred reasons why people thought Meetup were, would fail included everything from like they were they don't want to meet strangers, so they don't want to this, they don't want to, like there's a hundred reasons why Meetup would fail. One of the big ones was like, who the hell's going to organize a hiking club or, uh, you know, in, in that town, people are busy and they don't, they don't care. And they're, you know, like, but what happened was amazing, which was we had millions of organizers and these organizers put their heart and soul and spirit into these things and time into it. Kind of like red, like, you know, like, like subreddit admins and Facebook group organizers. There's a, a you know, and Wikipedia, um, like how did, you know, Wikipedia is so unlikely, but these are examples of people having more to give. And what's, am- and here's what's amazing. They, one of my favorite stories for meetup was there was a single mom's um, meetup group in uh, Jersey city. And, and um, long story short, when one of the moms had a second kid and that kid had to be in the newborn intensive care unit, the rest of the group sprung into action they created these spreadsheets about like who's who's going to take care of the the other kid the 2 year old 24/7 who's going to be by the mom's side taking shift 24/7 who's going to take care of this who's going to take care of that they they sprang into a community action and here's here's what's amazing the people who helped the mom uh in you know in need and by the way, in need sounds like charity. It's more like, no, this is their, their peer. Um, the, the, the women who helped her got as much out of it as the woman who was helped. They felt, they felt like they um, uh, uh, were useful and people want to be useful. So I'm, 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 I'm branching. My point is that I think the, what, what the world looks like in 2040 is that if you took a pie, if you took a pie chart of how people spend their time, I think a shift is going to be that and I'm sounding a little bit, but, but like a, a guy named Clay, Clay Shirky, who was writing books um, 15 years ago about stuff like this. But I really feel like it's just, it's, it's going to happen, which is that, um, that if you, I hate to use the word productize, but if you, um, if you make it easier for people to engage in being powerful together with others, um, in all these different forms, it doesn't have to ton about like politics or I mean, it just all various forms. Then um, you're going to see a shift in uh, people spending a little less time on frivolous obsessions with things they have no control over. You know, like the time you spend, you know, obsessing over some influencer is time that you might spend actually having influence in your real life. It sounds to me like you're interested in the question of how do you empower self-governance across work, uh, cities, towns, play. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Like, like my friend Dennis Crowley, I mean, he has this, this venture called street FC and it, which is like a, you know, football, you know, just people forming soccer, you know, and and sock pickup soccer games are huge on meetup and volleyball and all like the reason why you're not playing soccer tonight with a bunch of doofus, you know, half talented people like you in your town is because like, it's just 
No, it's just the the um, the organizing cost, the connection cost, the like just like it. You know, it's just not happening when people would want it to happen. That's what I'm interested in. Why are things not happen when people would want them to happen? Right. There's and, an there's an interest. There's an intent. Yeah. But it's not being served. Yeah, and 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 also the interest may not even the the, the interest may even be latent. Uh, like you don't even know that you're interested. Again, maybe people just want to sit on their ass and watch TikTok, and you know. But I don't know. We proved a bunch of that at Meetup, but I think it was like it was tiny compared to what's possible in the future. So I like to think about company creation or product creation, project creation, uh, about questions. Uh, meaning, I think that it's more interesting to start a project thinking about a question rather than an answer, and and, and that's because for enduring projects, the answer changes over time, and also questions lead you to new places in a way that answers are more closed, right? And so I guess the question for you then is, yeah, what is that question? And where are you in the journey of answering it? Are you still in the sort of fuzzy part or, or do you have a clarity there? You mean about like this this stuff I'm talking yeah, about? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, well, your current I, I'm, passion. I'm yammering here and it, it makes it sound like I have some project in the works around, uh, you know, the specific stuff I'm talking about, I, you know, I don't, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm taking care of my kids and thinking about, you know, and, and like being some, being a bit hands-on with this Amazon stuff. Cause I want to like, I want to like specifically see something happen there. But, uh, um, no, I mean, I, I love, uh, you know, I, I've started five companies, you know, uh, three successes, one failure and one, TBD and, and, um, people, you know, say like, oh, you, I, I don't think of like entrepreneurship as like, oh, uh, you know, I'm looking for an idea. I'm looking for an idea. It's more, it's like, instead of you having ideas, ideas have you, you know, it's like, you have to, it's like when you have to do something cause you can't not do something is, um, been my experience. And so I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm lucky that I, I get to just, you know, just, uh, yeah, the, 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 there might come a time when I'm like, oh, shit you know this this specific thing needs needs to be done but um, um by the way projects yeah. don't need to be companies like even you know you just having this conversation and sharing your ideas that's a project in and of itself because these are these are new ideas and unique ideas in some way so i guess but the the thrust of it though is like uh, how would you frame the the thrust of your interest right now yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm reminded of like Evan Williams, Evan Williams, the guy who founded he, he founded Blogger, then Twitter, then Medium. It's just like you can make fun of Evan, say all he did was change the size of the text box throughout his career. So yeah, I mean, I'm like I'm just thinking, you know, what is the lightness, you know, like from a design perspective, you know, how do you make lighter in some ways and heavier in some ways the the act of organizing, bringing people together. Um, and, um, but, uh, what I'm hearing there, by know. the way, is, you know, you thought meetup was a lifelong thing as a project. It wasn't for you, but the bigger picture of meetup, this self-organization is, and there are various formats that they can take on. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, it's, I'm, uh, yeah, I feel lucky. Like I, 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 you know, I, yeah, I know what I'm interested in. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, but, but, 
but kind of like my point about, you know, Mike D of the Beastie Boys versus Elon, you know, you could, it's a mindset. Like, if, like I, I, you know, I'm not done. So talk to me a little bit. You introduced me to the word solar punk, uh, which I thought was so cool because it really resonates. Tell me about that idea and, and what resonates to you about it. Yeah, well, th- this was brought to me by a, a person I mentioned named Dennis Crowley. He, uh, so yeah, like, oh my God, it just hit me at just the right time last year because I was just, um, because, you know, things are so dark with climate and other things, these futures. And, um, and it, and it, 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 um, so solar punk is like this subculture, this small little subculture that, uh, um, is really asking the question of, um, not just about eco or green or, you know, um, climate related stuff, but just generally like what's, what's a, what's a bright future, solar bright, you know, what's a bright future. And, and cause like, you know, a lot of punk culture has always been, you know, there's cyberpunk or, or just even the, the punk of New York seventies, you know, CBGBs is like this gritty, dark, uh, type of thing. Um, solar punk is basically saying that the most punk thing you could do in today's culture is to be an optimist because <laughs> because everyone tends to be so um, dark. The the counterculture is to be positive and 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 optimistic. And um, and so um, and to really, again, skirt the sort of like Hollywood push. Uh, and so uh, towards, you know, kind of dark dystopian future. But um, yeah, so solar punk, I mean, there's no, there's no there there. It's just like people throwing shit out there of visions that are, you know, sometimes written and sometimes visual uh, around, um, you know, and, and, and frankly, my, the thing that one of the things that turned me on most was the yogurt company Chobani uh, embracing solar punk culture and making some video that, that like, again, was a yogurt is a yogurt commercial, but is like one of the coolest things I've ever seen, which is just this simple flat picture of a, uh, future, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the future where, uh, where there's a farm and, and there's a lot of technology making the farming easier, uh, and a community of people, um, you know, self-sustaining in this farm with like, you know, the farm owner, her kid getting on this, um, solar powered flying bus to school in the city. Uh, and you know, whatever, just like, God, like it really is, it's an antidepressant. It's an antidepressant to like, to actually just, you know, take a moment and be like, oh yeah, that'd be cool. And then, and then, and then you can, and then you, the cynical part of you will be like, oh, well, that's not possible because of blah, blah, blah. I have so many, I have too many, you know, friends who could, including myself sometimes who can like pick apart any positive future vision and be like, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it is true that the, um, future belongs to um, crazy, stupid optimists. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, I think, as the stories have gotten darker, um, we're also just witnessing progress across the board in basically every area, economically, um, from an equity perspective, from an ideas perspective. Like, it's, you know, and it's not... It doesn't happen on its own, but we're actually trending positively, and that's where my optimism comes from. I also think that you know what you're getting at with um, the Hollywood version 
uh, of the future versus some of these other versions is a, a question of like passive versus active participation. And that's a theme that I'm getting at with, with a lot of your work with, with self-organizing. I think when people hear the word optimism, they think it's kind of like blind faith. But what we're actually describing here is like an active optimism where people are influencing it. Um, would you agree with that? Yes, a hundred percent. Because, um, yeah, my my I have a dear dear friend and mentor for decades. His name is uh, um, Richard Rowe, who he says I'm I'm not an optimist. I'm not a uh, pessimist. I'm a possibilist. He 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 he. You know, he says that like you know I I believe in I really look to possibilities and that asking of what's possible, what's possible here, what's possible here. And you know, with my with my kids, I annoyingly, you know, my like you know core like parenting thing is like is I just I just am like again annoyingly pressing them on like oh what's um hey what do you, what what could be the future of this or that or what's po- what's possible um you know and, and not to say like oh you smother over them being like you know upset about something with like some silver lining possible talk but like but really the fr- framing of life and um and uh again it's 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 a um it's a it's an antidepressant you know i think you know especially in when you read the news or you think in 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 the business world there's this kind of feeling of inevitability that you know markets will uncover opportunities and technology is inexorable in its progress and you know geopolitics has like a, a, a an inevitability to it but the reality is that we're actually learning every day that there are infinitely more possibilities that exist than what actually happens day to day. Like there is directionality. You can nudge the world. Um, And I think that's another theme we're getting at, which is that like uh, as we learn more, as we connect with each other, new ideas become possible, but not inevitable. And, you know, there's, there's some intervention by a human by a group of humans that can make that happen. Yeah, you know what's, but what's really interesting is pe- people might would tend, but tend to say like, hey, the market always fills a vacuum. If something's needed, it'll, you know, the, the billions of people, it'll, it will happen. But what I have really experienced, I don't know, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I really feel like the good things and the, and the best things actually are not inevitable. And they really take, uh, they they take a, a real drive of leadership by s- special groups of people. And by that, I mean like anyone, it, it, it's like anyone could be in this a special group of people. And, and the examples of this, and I hate to just be, you know, a Silicon Valley fanboy because I'm, I'm not, but like you think about like, it's not inevitable. Like a- Apple, be, you know, it's very possible that Apple didn't do, didn't that Apple wouldn't have existed and we would be, probably there inevitably would be smartphones, but they would probably be a lot shittier, you know? Cause I remember like, you know, and like, and I remember like getting a, you know, here's old man talk about you, you, when you bought a PC, when you bought a computer and in the nineties, it was like this, I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about like you open it and the computer was filled with adware. You literally would turn on the computer and it'd be like, like this garbage filled, like, shithole of like sorting through, you know, your like Verizon offers of like crap. 
And like there was no, there was, there was, it was like the worst corporate crap. And then app, and then as Apple started to take off, it was like, oh, Apple had some values. They had a, they, they had some taste. They, they, they there was a, a force of leadership that said like, no, we're gonna make, we're gonna make this the design good. We're gonna like say no to the adware, crapware, bloatware, and we all take that for granted now. Even like Google, I mean, Google, you know, has become evil. I think, but like, you know, the the don't be evil thing was a really big deal because before it, before Google, search was like. Not the quality of search, but the ads and the corporatization and the content and the crapware was just like, it was horrible. And then Google like came through. My point here is that the good stuff isn't inevitable. It takes real leadership. And and, and that's, by the way, where I think that is actually a... um, that's an inspiring, hopeful thing to people who have a sense of, who have a real sense of spirit and, and, and energy and good to make great things. So like if you are listening, you know, if you're, if you, if you have some feeling in you, like there could be a, a great solution to something. And, and if it's shepherded in a really quality way, I mean, just think of like net, you know, Netflix, love them or hate them. I mean, they, 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 they said no to ads forever and create and or HBO, the HBO model is crazy. It was a, a world full of like crappy ad TV shit on like network TV. And then HBO and Netflix came along and was like, no, we're going to make really good quality stuff. We're going to say no to it being like crappy with ads and we're going to charge people. And that didn't happen by accident. That was a real force of creative spirited leadership. Yeah, I think that really resonates. And for me personally, like as I've thought about what I want to do in my career and, and work on, um, I like to say I want to work on things that aren't inevitable. And I think that in you know in technology, but you know in, in commerce in general, some of the the big tectonic ideas are inevitable. Like, okay, yeah, there will be smartphones, but will there be an iPhone? That's not inevitable. The way in which it's done, the style of it, that's not inevitable. But when you do something in a new way, it opens new possibilities, right? So all of the things that came after the iPhone, all the apps, Instagram, Uber, all those things might not have happened if the iPhone hadn't existed. So it opens up these, you know, the, and, and that's why there's like a vitalness to pursuing those uh, those non-obvious implementations, those styles. Um, and the other way I think about it is like, you know, when we we think about commerce, we think about the force of the market. But like, let's look at another realm, like art. Like, you know, paintings are inevitable, but Picasso is not inevitable. Like, great music is not inevitable. Like, you know, great artists are singular in that sense. You listen to Radiohead; they are that was inevitable, right? There, there are trends in rock and roll, but the Beatles were of a kind. And I think that that is a really good metaphor for anything. It's like, how can you bring that kind of new approach to a field? Um, And those are things worth doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, I don't interpret what we're talking about as like an ode to the 0.1% of greatness. I take it as like an invitation to anyone to like pursue doing something great because like it is... And, and, you know, and I'm a living, you know, for what I mean, you know, whatever little shred of impact I've had, I mean, I'm so far, I'm like, I'm a living example of like, really, you can be some schmuck from wherever and, and like, have this 
I mean, to think that you could start a platform where it's going to somehow get network traction and you're going to be able to like have people gather, not just, you know, online virtually about something, but like it'll, you'll get enough volume so that you can have local gatherings everywhere about something, about different, about all things. You got to be crazy to think you could pull that off. And, and, you know, we did, which is just the point being that, um, well, hell, if I could have done that, anyone can. And, and I think that, um, again, going to this question of feeling powerful, antidepressants, locking in on certain vision points for the future that, you know, what is, what is the world that ought to be? What's the world you want? What's, the, uh, what's something in the future um, that you think would be cool? And maybe it's unlikely, but it's, it's a good way to spend life to go, go pursue it. Even if that's just like, you know, hey, I, I'm going to be a teacher in that school and make that school fucking great. I think what we're talking about is like putting your mark on the world or changing the world. And I think over the past 10 years, like the idea of like changing the world has gotten a bit of a bad rap, which is unfortunate because ultimately like it's the only way the world gets better. How do you think about that? Like, how do we make it cool again? Well, I mean, my, you know, one of my best friends and my, my, my work husband, my long, my forever business partner, Brendan McGovern, if I ever utter the phrase change the world, he, he, you know, uh, throws up in his mouth. Uh, and so I've been, uh, you know, trained by him, but the, um, <laughs> no, fuck it. I mean, like, I feel like, uh, you know, again, we, we take everything around us for granted, but it's, 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 uh, you know, like people have made the world and we can continue making it and we, and we have to, um, uh, and it's, that can be fun, but yeah, I, but I get the, I get the, like this idea of like, you know, there, there's a, a book title called uh, Elite Charade of Changing the World. Uh, the, the title is uh, Anand Girdahardadas, where he, I, I get why the, by the, the, why the, like the flavor of change, changing the world has, is, is not good because it's like, it's been used up by the kind of neoliberal Ted, Ted speaker class of like, oh, we just need this like little social entrepreneurship. And Everything, you know, sort of falls into place when and, and no one has to sacrifice. But if I'm honest about like 30 years of like 30 years of experience in Internet stuff and, and, and this is part of the world and, and seeing the mistakes of Zuckerberg and things of that sort where it's like you, you can't be naive and you have to really plan for the, the fact that there's dark forces and that and there's dark forces in all of us. And the realities of that, it's not, not a naive techno optimism, but a more mature, that's, I guess, in a way, I'm, I haven't thought about this, but like, okay, fine, the world, like, it's a young man's game, young person's game, and, and, and the, the, the biggest breakthroughs will probably come from people in their 20s uh, and 30s. But I, I do feel that we're in, a, we're in an interesting spot where there is some value to the maturity and experience that comes from having like lived through these like waves of techno optimism. And I'm not sure what the hell I'm talking about right now, but there's something. No, I think if you look at just the the human journey, right, we often, or the the classic arc is that, you know, you start out as this sort of like uninformed, confident individual um, oftentimes, and then you encounter reality and you quickly become not confident and you, you you lose that as you gain more information as you learn about more of the world it's easy to get stuck at that point but if you keep working on it and you keep learning you can emerge with a sort of informed confidence which is you know it sounds like where we're where we're getting to with, with yeah this, or there, the there's, there's a woman who uh if you want to double tap on that who's working a lot in the stuff 
I was just saying, and you were just saying, her name is Deepti Doshi, D-E-E-P-T-I. I I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. But um, but really, her her question is, is like, what did, uh, one of her questions is like, what did, um, what did the techno optimists of, uh, you know, early internet get right and get wrong? I saw, I was doing a little research and uh, I saw that in like over 10 years ago, you were at one of the, uh, I I think it was like an All Things D conference. And you asked Steve Jobs a question. Talk about that. What was that like? Oh my gosh, I, I, I'm so I'm generally not nervous, and I like I come off like such a more with really my cool. stumbled question. Although I did make him laugh, but uh, yeah, and I think that may have been his. I, I could have this wrong, but it may have been his last public question because it was uh, the last question. It is, I think, last appearance at the at that when he would go to that conference uh, for a number of years. Yeah, I uh, well, and and actually, it was a very. I did make him laugh about something, but I, I, I uh, but it, it was a really meaningful, heartfelt question to me. Actually, it's right. It's this question because he, I, it's so funny. Yeah. Because like literally the most, one of the most formative things in my whole life was, uh, is it was being like 16, 17 years old and hearing about the fact that when, you know, he was building up Apple and, and knew that he, the, you know, he, it was the management, he wasn't so good at the management. So he, you know, classic founder stuff. So he like goes and wants to find an executive to be the, uh, to be the CEO. And he finds uh, this guy, John Scully, who was the president of Pepsi. And he took him on a walk in, in Central Park. And, and, uh, you know, he, and, you know, he was like, hit him with like the final, like, you know, okay, are, are you in? He said, he said, do you want to change the world? Do you want to, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want a chance to change the world? So he had to say yes. And, you know, but, but it was the reason why that, like, that story is so meaningful to me is that, is that, like, whoever thinks about, you know, like, you, you grew up thinking, oh, Pepsi, Pepsi is like a great company. And, and even the, like, CEO of Pepsi for years, Indra, who was like this revered as this special, as this wonderful woman. But, like, at the end of the day, they're just selling sugar water. And, 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 um, as a, you know, and so to, to really question, like, are you being of use? What is, what's your work actually about? Anyway, so yeah, so so here I am. I get to you know I, I get a, I get to ask Steve Jobs a question, and I was you know it was my own personal seeking. You know I'm like, okay, here you are now. What does changing the world mean? Um, and and I also, but I was fumbled with it because I was also kind of annoyed that he was like getting deeper and deeper into Hollywood stuff, whatever personal annoyance. But yeah, so that was. But that. by the way, so the question was, you know, how, how do you think about changing the world and how do you think about your work at Apple and your work at Pixar and Hollywood? Yeah, it was what, I, my question was, what is changing the world now? Yeah. But, you and know, I think one of the themes of this conversation is about visions and about storytelling. Um, and, you know, at the time you were sort of critiquing the Hollywood idea, but actually like Hollywood is a change engine, right? Like it creates futures. Yeah, it's true. It's true, but his, but his answer was great. He was like, he was like, clearly he's, he was. Sh- I mean, he he, and it was interesting given the timing of that because he his answer was like, oh hey, you know, on our um, iTunes store or something, we have like an education area where you can get like lectures from the great professors at the great universities, and it was like, you know, this is obviously pre podcast, pre heavy YouTube, pre um, yeah. Is, uh, that was like 2010 yeah. or 11, right? Yeah, like uh, no er- earlier. Uh, yeah. I think 2009, maybe. Yeah. So these days, like, who are your heroes, if any? I make some people hate me, but like, I really look to the you know AOC and Bernie, who are 
really putting forward uh, a vision of the world that isn't like kowtowing to the funders of the Democratic Party and such. Otherwise, I, I yeah, I, I really do. Uh, I, I, I look up to builders of, of, of all of all kinds. I mean, honestly, like if someone, you know, I, who was it the other day? I, I wouldn't, you know, like a buddy of mine, um, Andrew Mason is the, he was the founder of Groupon. And, uh, you know, I was helping him out when, with his pre, with, with that company before it was Groupon, before he pivoted. And, um, you know, here's a guy who like, he's, he's building something. It's, I'm not particularly interested in the, the product he's building, but it looks like a really cool product. It's called Descript. But what I really applaud is like, wow, you know, he's like just, hands dirty, um, making something when he could just be, you know, a guy like me who's not doing much or just, you know, being an investor or something. So, but, uh, let's see, gosh, I wish I had a, I wish I prepared for that, that question. Who do I, I think, look up to, you know, what I, th- what I hear from you also, and every time we chat, I, I feel this way, which is like, there's like a kind of radicalism and in a non-obstructionist way, right? Like, cause radicalism I think is often thought about in the obstructionist context of like tearing things down. But I think chatting with you is always a reminder of like, you know, and I, you, you try, you qualify a lot of admiration for let's say an AOC or Bernie, but like, I don't think what you're saying is yes. And right. You're interested in markets, you're interested in capitalism, and you're also interested in people who are questioning those ideas and like really breaking down our notions of like how an organization should be run or how capitalism should work. These don't feel conflicting to me. And I think that this sort of nuanced, uh, or new capitalism or new approach to markets is the future. Hell yeah. I mean, who's just like, why would you think that we're done as a, as a, as a society, you know, as mankind, as person, mankind, person, kind, woman, kind, whatever you call it. I mean, for real. I mean, like there's a, there's a sense that like, so I might be speaking out of school, but I, I have a handful of close family members who are um, physicians and I was just, I was just seeing them on at Thanksgiving and um, the stories they tell about, the dysfunction in hospitals um, about like l- just pure systemic brokenness of how like there's a person having a stroke right now, but the neurosurgeon can't get that person to um, get an MRI right now because there's a line of people who need an MRI. So someone's like in line to get an MRI for their knee and the system and the tech, the the MRI tech is like, sorry, I'm just following the rules. I can't do an emergency MRI and like things like that. And so what's most sad about it, and again, I guess I, I don't realize, you know, we don't realize as people like how one trick pony we are, like how, you know, how our themes are so consistent, but like it's the, the, the hardest part of that story is for the, is, is for the uh, doctors or the young doctors to say, well, all I can do is accept, you know, it's like you, all you can do is, um, you know, you can, there's things you can change in the world and there's things you can't. And the only way you can stay sane, the only way you can, the, I mean, the only way you can get by in life is if you can just like accept what you can't change. And these are smart, ambitious people, family members of mine are like, and I, and I don't want to be the, you know, I don't want to be just like, you go change the system. Like, cause I don't want to have them to drive them crazy, you know, but it, it's really an interesting question. But you're interested like, in systematic ways of exposing that possible change. 
Well, and and just like, wait, really? Humans, like, we're in the year 2022, 20, 2022 years after Christ and some, you know, tens of thousands of years of, like, we learned how to make bread. We learned how to make buildings. We learned how to, like, we made so much in this world. We can't change this hospital. <laughs> right. Like, like it's done. Like, we're just locked in forever for the next thousand years. Things are just going to just be broken. Yeah, and no. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm not like I don't want to give an inspirational speech to that person saying like, "Oh, you should uh, threaten your job, threaten your life, and be that change agent." That's too much to ask for. But yeah, how do you even begin? How do you think about that? I think it's about tools. I think it's about creating tools that allow people to nudge the world in the way that they would like it to be. And I think that there's a landscape of tools that don't exist. Uh, and some tools are more specialized than others. And so there should be tools for doctors. There should be tools for painters. There should be tools for community organizers. And I think, yeah, as technologists, we're in the business of making tools. And so that's, you know, to me, the, the, the leverage point. But one of the things that got me excited about the crypto and Web3 moment, uh, despite, I think, 90% of it, frankly, being bullshit, is that there is this core utopianism and this core questioning of norms. And specifically, I'm most interested in the questioning of organizational norms and organizational structures, meaning you know, the corporation is like the dominant organizational structure of our moment. It is in, a, in some ways an amazing invention, right? Like so much is possible because of the corporation, but it's hundreds of years old, right? And, and there are absolutely new possible ways of organizing humans to do a thing. And I think crypto and DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, that was a theoretical idea and is of an alternative. And I think it was misguided in a lot of ways. And when you threw in like a speculative token scheme, it just went off the rails. But to me, the, the what we're getting at here, and I think another theme is just what are new possible structures for people organizing to do things? And I think that's another, when we think about technology and tools, that's a layer of tools. Tools for self-organizing are tools. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting. You started this whole conversation off by framing the conversation, framing me as like technology, as a technologist. Well, yeah, I've been, you know, I'm like the, I've been like nerdy about technology, but, uh, but actually, I think that it's really important to not approach these things from a primarily a technology perspective. For me, I mean, you know, I think, I, yeah, I think there was something really, the fact that people all of a sudden started talking about decentralized forms of humans organizing to do big things like buy a copy of the Constitution, like that's totally up my alley. But I think there was too much obsession. And I think there's too much obsession with like the, not the tools, with the like kind of formats and, and like, you know, kind of purest, purest technical underpinnings of it, which that might have been really important and really necessary. But what I found with a lot of, uh, I, 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 if you look back at, my, no one will do this, but if you look back at my like Twitter reply history, I, during that period of like when people were talking so much about Web3 and crypto, I was replying to everyone dozens and dozens of times when they would talk about this kind of stuff. And with a pure, honest, earnest way, I was saying like, hey, can you paint a picture of what this future looks like? Because I'm really interested. Please, 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 like, please take some time and describe this future to me. And, um, you know, like how it like rolls out to, to, to real life and real people. And no one could, you know, 
almost no one ever like answered partly because I was just an annoying like Twitter reply person. But, um, but, but it really goes to the point of, um, and, and, and I'm not questioning the intentions of a lot of people in that world. There's a lot of really, real good. But generally speaking, this kind of like nerdy obsession with like, what's the blockchain as opposed to what's the, what's the human life situation? And, and I'll tell you, I was like obsessed for a year of like trying to figure this out. And Dennis Crowley and I, we were having our, 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 coffees and he you know he said he's at web 2.5 i'm at 2.6 he's at 2.8 i'm at 2.9 like we're joking around like web 2 guys like trying to figure out how close we are to understanding what web 3 is and and i and i just um as soon as i said screw it i'm not going to like be tracking every nuance of this this uh you know um that world anymore and just focused my attention on the this amazon union stuff it was like, it was so liberating because that, cause, cause, cause I was like, oh my God, I'm not having to give a shit about whether, you know, something, you know, about what the nuances of Ethereum or what this is or what that is. I can literally just think about like, what are, you know, very, it, it's like a, it's, it's sometimes like, you know, genius is in the simplicity. The, sim- the simple question is like, how do these workers stand together and force a situation where they're paid more, you know, and that's about, that's, that's, that's not like, and so people get lost in the technology and maybe that's where their talent is and what their interest is and God bless. But, um, but I think that, uh, you know, the, the exciting, and I, and I, and I would push people to be like, push your thinking about what the, what the scenario is of some of the applicability. I mean, like if you're, you know, universe and you're talking about like, how do people with less intention make it easier for them to make, um, you know, put something out there on the web, uh, you know, yeah, being like really going into those scenarios of like, wh- what does it look like and feel like and smell like for someone to, to, to like make a, a universe thing, um, uh, what, what's that situation that that'll, that'll, uh, you know, spend as much time on that as you do on the nuances of like the feel of the web UI. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the technology, the, the problem with the Valley in many ways is it's an obsession, which makes sense with the technology, with the means of implementation, but th- that's what they are. They're the means of implementation. There are many ways to solve a problem. And I actually think that the most exciting ideas from that web three moment last year had nothing to do with blockchain. And there are so many better means of implementations than blockchain as a technology. Sometimes, though, the technology needs to inspire that line of thinking, which I think it did there. And, you know, I think that, um, I think that what we need to do in those moments is use the inspiration that comes in those times, but then figure out what the best tools are to actually make them happen. And, you know, I have this theory that People think about the history of computing as a story about computers getting faster and smaller and cheaper. But really, I think the much more interesting story is about power, that over time, computers have gone from the instrument of governments, from the biggest organizations in the world to fight wars, then to corporations, then to individuals who could open an, uh, could own a desktop computer, and now to everyone on earth with a phone in your pocket. And that's a story about radical power and I think the, the other subtext there is I actually think a lot of those evolutions in technology are a downstream of culture, meaning if you think about what uh, 
propagated the personal computer, this agent of like personal freedom, that was the counterculture in the Bay Area that had nothing to do with computers. That was about, you know, challenging notions of, you know, corporate America and the right way to live a life. And here you you had some people who were taking LSD and going to live in a commune and, and, and you know, and, and like and farm. But then you had a whole other group of people who were like, no, 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 we're going to invent tools that can liberate us, that can give us new superpowers. And so I think that we're actually in a moment right now, I think we're in a countercultural moment and that it ultimately counterculture is always about a pendulum swing of power. And I think that to me, the the resonance with some of these blockchain ideas is just a barometer that actually what we want is alternative structures, other structures, other ways of organizing power. AOC is getting at the same thing. What you're talking about is the same thing. What we're doing at Universe of bottoms up creativity, it's the same thing. And, you know, I think that's what we're all exploring. Yes. Yeah. And um Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. That was really well said. And and the the thing that I just would would um that I'm curious about is like and I wanna and I wanna like make sure my bearings are straight on because we all come from, you know, whatever various bubbles is like, is this a moment of counterculture or is this a moment of well, and which counterculture? <laughs> like the Trump uh, the, the, you know the Trump movement and MAGA and January sixth is a is a is a counterculture movement. You have my colleagues in the Amazon labor union are and 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 others are like um you know they are coming from a you know a counterculture that is you know i would say you know stop calling each other comrade and um drop like the socialist language and let's 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 figure out how to you know how and i'm not i'm not and i'm I'm saying the opposite of let's, oh, we should just all go centrist. And in the middle, the question is, is like, is really just, is, is instead of obsessing about labels and such, just get into what's the world we want. Can we describe a world we want? And by the way, just a little side note that's, although I, I, I want to totally acknowledge what, what, what you just said, because it is cool. It's like, it's like, yes, the, the world we live in with a smartphone in our pocket and the tools that we have coming out of Silicon Valley is a direct lineage from the non-tech flower power i mean it's it's crazy it really is true and it's um that that the that the 60s san francisco counterculture led to this world that is um is is you know uh for good and for bad you know defining people's lives with their with their you know addiction to their screen in their in their hand um but I just, I just wanted to say one other thing that there is, there's like this really fascinating, so, uh, you know, the way with, I, I saw this really interesting thing on like uh, um, an application of Dolly, which is basically this automated, they're taking um, street views all around the world and turning them into dolled up, beautiful greenified, public spaceified, you know, really good, really wonderful, um, you know, taking basically ugly, ugly intersections everywhere and saying, what, what if there was bike lanes? What if there was, uh, you know, um, more pedestrian, but, you know, pedestrian friendly stuff and, and autumn, it's just like in mass, you know, uh, in, you know, this, the computers are creating this vision of a, of a, better real world while at the same time, which I think is actually, uh, I'm surprised that I find that as cool as I do because I generally like, I'm saying like, no, human creativity needs to be in there. But 
it's, a, it's a, actually an optimistic, promising thing that computers can be like triggering or instigating us as people to say, hey, what if, uh, what if, what if this street looked like this or this or this? And it's like, oh, uh, and so this, um, so if we want to have a world where people are actively envisioning a better world, their world being better, um, maybe computers can augment that. And that comes at the same time when I think one of the most meta important questions about our future is the virtual world is getting more appealing while the real world is because of climate and lack of opportunity because of concentration of power is becoming like less appealing. And so the retreat to the virtual world, you know, over the coming decades is, uh, and a kind of disregard for the real world is a real, um, you know, is a, is a, is a counterforce to these these questions of like you know people taking the sort of self governance of their world um, more easily, which which just basically puts the importance on making tools for people to self govern their worlds uh, as as even more important. Because I think you know we're just ultimately at this. I mean, there's like this push and pull of like you know TikTok and everything else is going to be you know and the and the metaverse is going to be increasingly more irresistible and um and people's social skills will decrease as that as they retreat more to non social existence but you know no i mean i'm hopeful that like nature is also irresistible you know the beauty of nature and the and just physical embodied connection with people it's promising to live in a place like New York City where you see people, and, and I'm sure everywhere else, so, you know, people are alive at the restaurants and everywhere else. Like, we're not, like, dissolving into screens in the metaverse completely. And I think that um, there's a human yearning that's not, not going to die for. And I think that as the tools, and last thing is not just the tools, this is the most hopeful thing for 2040. This is a really important point, is that when you see others... Um, experiencing power and feeling good with it, it's contagious. So, you know, that the reason why Starbucks have gone from zero to about 300 stores being uh, unionized in the past year is because one store saw another store do it and another store saw the other store do it. And this flywheel kicks in the network, you know, you, you know, I've grown up with network effects and flywheels that are really, you know, about like marketplace or communication network um, flywheels. But what I'm hopeful for in the future is the flywheels around progress, give, encouraging more people to engage in progress. Cool. Well, that's an amazing note to end on. Scott, thank you so much. Yeah, that was amazing. thanks, Joe. This is really fun. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.univer.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.